You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the part two for the episode, Voice Over the Moon. You don't strictly need to listen to part one, but I mean, why wouldn't you? Let's just jump right in. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Back when the BBC was first launched in 1922, the first general manager of the corporation, Sir John Reith, insisted the BBC be as formal and quintessentially British as possible, and he created a number of rules towards that end. One thing he stressed in particular was that the newscasters only speak the King's English. He felt it was a style or quality of English that would not be laughed at in any part of the country. He also assumed this very proper way of speaking, called received pronunciation, would be easier for people across the empire to understand versus a regional accent of which the tiny landmass of the UK has dozens, if not maybe hundreds. He wanted things to be just so, even ordering that any newscaster reading the news after 8 p.m. had to wear a dinner jacket on the air on the radio, where no one can see you. The BBC didn't create received pronunciation, though. We can trace the origins of RP back to secondary schools and universities of 19th century Britain, making it the accent of a certain social class, the one with the money. Their speech patterns, based loosely on the local accent of the Southeast Midlands, Roughly London, Oxford, and Cambridge soon came to be associated with the establishment. Although one of Reith's goals in using RP was to appeal to the widest audience possible, many listeners felt alienated by the broadcasts being beamed into their home because of this upper-class accent being used. Despite this, newscasters were required to use received pronunciation right up until World War II. Why change it during the war? I'm sure they had a lot of bigger and more important things to do. Well, the Ministry of Information was worried about Nazis hijacking the radio signal. During World War II, Nazi Germany invested a lot of time and money to train spies and propagandists to speak using perfect received pronunciation so they could pass as British. If they pulled it off, the Nazis could potentially issue orders over the radio in a thoroughly convincing and official-sounding newscast. Therefore, the BBC began to hire newscasters possessed of broad regional accents that would be more difficult for the Germans to copy, and as a bonus, might help them appeal more to the common man. The first person to read the news on the BBC with a distinct regional accent was one Wilfred Pickles in 1941. This is the BBC Home and Forces Programme. 
Here is the news. This is Wilfred Pickles reading it. That wasn't actually Wilfred Pickles. I hired a fellow voiceover artist out of Britain to do that. The public trusted that Wilfred Pickles was British and not German, but they didn't trust or simply couldn't ignore his accent to pay attention to a word he said. Far from being embraced by the people, his Yorkshire accent offended many listeners so much that they wrote letters, blasting the BBC for having the audacity to sully the news that way. Nonetheless, after the end of World War II, the BBC continued to loosen its guidelines and began to hire more people who spoke with the respective accent of the region the broadcast was being made in. That said, the BBC does continue to select newscasters with the most mild accents possible for international broadcasts. Now, you can't please everyone, but if you can get in good in the voice work industry, you can do a staggering amount of work. Here are some examples, pulling only from the cast of my favorite TV show, Futurama. You might say my husband and I are fans. We had a hypnotoad wedding cake. Hit me up on the social media. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, because I have to, Moxie Labouche, and let me know if you want to see it. Billy West, the voice of Fry, Professor Farnsworth, and Zoidberg, as well as both Ren and Stimpy, has 266 acting credits on his IMDb page. Maurice LaMarche, who did Calculon, Morbo, and Kiff, and is just the go-to guy if you need Orson Welles impressions, like Brain on Animaniacs, has 390 roles listed. And by the way, if you've never watched the drunk outtakes from Orson Welles' Paul Masson commercial shoot, treat yourself. It's five minutes well spent. Tress McNeil, who did basically every female who wasn't Amy or Leela, as well as Dot on Animaniacs and Agnes Skinner on The Simpsons, has 398 roles to her name. Bender's voice actor John DiMaggio, without whom the Gears of War video game series would be lost, has worked on some 424 projects. The man who made Hermes Comrade Jamaican in the first place and gave us Samurai Jack, Phil Lamar, is the most prolific voice actor on that cast, with a whopping 495 credits to his name. Still, he falls short of the resume of Rob Paulson, who did the voices of Yakko and Pinky on Animaniacs, and other examples you'd recognize too numerous to list here, because his IMDb page lists over 540 credits. Paulson does still trail behind Tara Strong, though, the actress who voiced Bubbles on Powerpuff Girls, Raven on Teen Titans, and Timmy on Fairly Odd Parents, has 609 roles to her 35-year career, or about an average of 17 jobs a year. 17 jobs in a year may not sound impressive, but have you ever tried to get one acting job? Even with all her blandishments, Strong still can't hold a candle to the man whose voice I can identify from two rooms away, which is odd considering how poorly I hear, a man who will always be Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop, no matter what he's playing in, Steve Bloom, who has racked up 798 voice roles. In fact, between me writing that and you hearing it, he's probably gotten over 800. And those are just a sampling of voice actors I can name off the top of my head. So when career day rolls around, maybe skip doctor, firefighter, and suggest your kid become a voice actor. 
Some might need reassurance that you're not pushing them toward voice work because they might not be naturally suited to on-camera. Not everyone who does voice work has a face for radio, as they used to say. I put pictures of all of the cast from Futurama and the other names that I mentioned up on the Vodacast app so you can see for yourself. The Vodacast app is a really cool podcast player that allows creators like me to add a bunch of supplemental information so I can show you pictures or link to videos, all the stuff that I would show you if I was telling you this in person. It's still in early launch, but you can get the Vodacast app for both Android and Apple. I'll even throw in a picture of Pedro Pascal recording his lines for The Mandalorian holding a pillow because The Mandalorian is holding Baby Yoda in the scene. I know that's not his name. I don't care. Now you might be saying to yourself, sure, that sounds like a sweet gig. You walk in, you say a couple of sentences, and you cash the check. Oh, my sweet summer child. If it was that easy, everyone would do it. For starters, there is no got it in one take in voice acting. Be prepared to do your lines over and over and over again with different emphasis, different inflection, different pacing, or sometimes just giving lots of takes until the director or the engineer hears that subtle difference they're looking for. And bonus fact, the feeling you get when you say a word or phrase so many times that it stops sounding like a word and just becomes kind of a meaningless noise is called semantic satiation. Now you may be in a booth all day, or as I like to call it, the small padded room where I talk to myself, but that doesn't mean it won't be physically taxing. Actors dubbing anime, in particular, are required to do a lot of screaming. Chris Sabat, who voices Vegeta in the Dragon Ball series, says that even with a background in opera and the vocal control that that taught him, I will literally be sick the next day. I'll have flu-like symptoms because you have used so much energy and use up so much of your voice to put power into those scenes that it'll make you sick. That's not an exaggeration. I will be bedridden sometimes after screaming for too long. I totally, totally get that. You know what I get and totally dig? Folks that take the time out of their day to review the podcast. This one comes from Dr. Trixie, who I swear I've read a review from before, but uh, just can't be asked to scroll all the way back and find out. Who says, We love the podcast and can't wait until each one comes out. Happy to support her on Patreon as well. So few podcasts are really good. This one is always outstanding. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Trixie. Speaking of the Patreon, I have something really, really, really exciting coming next week. I just did a special episode with Javier Leva from the Pretend and uh, Criminal Conduct podcasts. If you've never heard Pretend, it's one of my Drop Everything podcasts. I just love it. I never thought I would get to work with him. We did an episode that doesn't fit the format of either of our shows, and we're both going to run it. It came out just over an hour long, so I'm going to run the first half for next week's episode. But the second half will only be at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts for all supporter levels. And that's in addition to the regular monthly bonus episodes. If you want to help the show by wearing your love of Your Brain on Facts on your sleeve, there's always our merch store on TeePublic, which you can get to at yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. 
But of course, the best way to help a podcast is to tell people about it, which brings me to possibly the most important message in today's show. Hashtag Moxie Million. Your Brain on Facts turns four years old. What a precocious little scamp. On February the 27th. The show is currently sitting just north of 930,000 total downloads. I want to see this show get to 1 million downloads before its birthday, and I know we can do it. So share a fact you've learned on the show, whether this week's episode or something from the back catalog, share it on your social media, and be sure to include the hashtag MoxieMillion. So it's M-O-X-I-E-M-I-L-L-I-O-N-O-S, singular, MoxieMillion. And I'll be tracking that hashtag to give out t-shirts and assorted merch. I'm going to 3D print some puzzles. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And of course, I do still have some copies of the Your Brain on Facts book that I could send people. So help the show get to 1 million downloads before the end of February. Get some prizes. Hashtag MoxieMillion. But you've got nothing to worry about if you can't find a gig. Remember how I rattled off all those actors who've had hundreds of roles each? That's because in rough figures, 5% of actors get 95% of entertainment-based work. So unless you're already Tara Strong or Phil Lamar, noteworthy roles will be hard to come by. But don't despair, because there's a lot of VO in the world that isn't cartoons and dubbing movies. And there's money to be made. For example, you might get paid by the word, as well as by the tag. A tag is a part of a recording that can be swapped out, like recording a commercial and also recording the tags coming soon, opening this Monday, and now open. The client gets three different commercials from one recording session, so you get more money. Assuming the client actually orders the session, you may find yourself on standby or avail, as it's called in the industry. You may be asked to set aside a few hours or even whole days for a recording session, but the client isn't actually obligated to use you during that avail time, and you can't take any other bookings because you're contractually obligated to be available for them. But it is a job you can do in your PJs, and uh, I, don't, I do, you know, and that's always a plus. Even though no one can see the actors, voice work does still use props and accessories. While computers can be used to speed up or slow down dialogue, which is more of a concern when dubbing the animation where the visuals are already done and set in stone, certain vocal changes can be easily achieved using random items in the studio. If the character is in a hollowed-out tree, I might stick my head in a wastebasket. Veteran voice actor Corey Burton told Mental Floss, If it doesn't sound quite right, I can throw in some wadded-up Kleenex for better acoustics. Burton, like Mel Blanc, prefers to eat real food when the moment calls for it. They want you sometimes to just go nom nom nom. No, I want a carrot, a cookie. I don't want to make a dry slurping noise when I could be sipping a drink. Pencils also play an important role. Not for making notes on the script or creating any sort of convincing sound effect, though absolutely they can be used for that. The plague of performers is plosives. You've probably heard them on other podcasts, and you've definitely heard them here. A plosive is the noise you get when making a consonant that is produced by stopping the airflow using the lips, teeth, or palate, followed by a sudden release of air. 
It's called popping your peas, since that's the worst culprit. A round mesh screen in front of the mic can help, but the old-school trick to stop plosives actually uses a pencil. If you're getting pea pops on the recording, voice actors will hold a pencil or similar linear object upright against the lips. This disrupts the airflow enough to avoid the giant sharp spike in the sound wave. Now, if only there were some cheap and easy trick to get rid of mouth clicks and lip smacks. You've probably heard them on this podcast, too. But for every one you notice, I probably cut out 20. As a voice actor, the most surefire way to avoid those mouth noises is good hydration. As a client, the surefire way to avoid mouth noise is to use a computer-generated or AI voice. Now, this is a sticky wicket in the VO community, a real burr under a lot of saddles. Whenever it comes up in message groups, a third of people turn into South Park characters. They took our jobs! I won't get too insider baseball here, but here's the scoop. AI voices are cheap, fast, and they're getting really good. Have you ever gotten a robo-dialer call where it took you a moment to realize it wasn't a real person? There are companies offering entire audiobooks in AI voices. There's even an AI voice that can cry. So why am I not bothered? The way I see it, the people who will buy the cheapest possible option, in this case an AI voice, were always going to buy the cheapest possible option. And invariably, the cheaper the client is, the more working with them makes you regret even starting your business in the first place. It's an irony a lot of freelancers and small business owners are all too familiar with. The $5,000 client pays you the day after you submit the invoice. The $50 client makes you hound them for six weeks, and then they say they want you to do it over again or come down on your price. So I'm fine with letting those buyers do the AI voices. The other reason is that while AI applications and devices like smart speakers are powered by computer-generated voices, those voices actually originated in the throats of real people. Coincidentally, I just wrapped an AI generation job last week. In most cases, even computerized voices need a human voice as a foundation for the development of the vocal database. So it may take jobs away from VOs, but it's also creating some jobs too. Are the actors who do AI generation jobs putting themselves out of jobs in the future? Maybe, maybe not. It's definitely something I had to wrestle with before accepting that job, but I figured AI's coming whether we like it or not. So it's best to get in the boat now so you can help to steer it rather than be capsized by its wake. Now, when I took that gig, there were two critically important questions I had for the client. What control do I have over how my voice will be used? And what happens if you sell the company? I asked these two questions for two good reasons. Bev Standing and Susan Bennett. Bev Standing, a voiceover and coach from Canada that I've done some classes with, was surprised one day to hear her own voice being used on other people's videos when friends and colleagues told her to log on to this new TikTok thing. Hi TikTok, my name is Misty. How text messages go with my younger brother? Yo sis, yo bro. People could use her voice to make the computer say whatever they liked, no matter how vile. And she'd never worked with, been paid by, 
or given permission for use to TikTok. According to Standing, who is a really nice lady, by the way, the audio in question was recorded as a job for the Chinese Institute of Acoustics four years earlier, ostensibly for use with translations. The only people I've worked with are the people I was hired by, which was for translations. My agreement is not what it's being used for, and it's not with the company that's using my voice, Standing said in an interview. Standing filed a lawsuit against TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, on the grounds of intellectual property theft. She hadn't consented to her performance being used by TikTok and had very real concerns that the content created by users using her voice would hurt her ability to find work in the future. Imagine if a January 6th insurrectionist, boy, 6th insurrectionist is hard to say. Imagine if a January 6th insurrectionist or other such hateful wackaloon used your voice on their videos. Good luck getting a job after that. TikTok and ByteDance stayed pretty much mum on the issue, both publicly and to standing and her lawyer, who also sometimes works as a voiceover. But they did shortly thereafter change the AI voice, which certainly looks like they know they done wrong. The lawsuit was settled a few months ago, but it's all sealed up in non-disclosure agreements, so I can't tell you the details, but the voiceover community is considering it a win. And now a word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The other name I mentioned was that of Susan Bennett, but that's not the name you know her by. Though she was training to be a teacher, it soon became clear to Susan Bennett that her voice was destined for more than just saying, eyes on your own paper. She acted in theater, was in a jazz band and an a cappella group, and was a backup singer for Burt Bacharach and Roy Orbison. That background helped her land gigs doing VO and singing jingles for the likes of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Macy's, IBM, and more. In 1974, she became the voice of First National Bank of Atlanta's Tilly the All-Time Teller, 
one of the first bank ATMs. Her voice helped make automatic teller machines more user-friendly to a public largely unfamiliar with computers. Bonus fact, one of the earliest ATMs in New York City printed the security picture of the user on the receipt. According to the man who sold them to the bank, the only people using these machines were prostitutes and gamblers who didn't want to deal with tellers face-to-face. Or it could be the hours they keep. I can neither confirm nor deny this. But I'd like to think that sex workers are the underappreciated early adopters that help the rest of us to be able to hit the cash machine on the way out of town or the Mac machine, as my mom called it, well into the 90s. Bennett also became the voice of Delta Airline announcements, GPS, and phone systems. But even with all that, that's probably not where you know her voice from. Hey Siri, how big is the Serengeti? Shall I search the web? Susan Bennett was the original voice of Siri on the iPhone, but she never actually worked for Apple. In 2005, she recorded a wealth of words and wordy-sounding noises for a company called ScanSoft, or Nuance. I've seen both listed, and I'm not sure which it is. For half the workday every day in July 2005, Bennett was holed up in her home studio, saying thousands of phrases and sentences of mostly to complete nonsense, which the Uber geeks, as she called them, can use for generating AI speech. According to Bennett, I was reading sentences like cow hoist in the tub hut today, militia oi hallucinate bakra okra ooze. Then I would read these really tedious things that were the same word but changing out a vowel. Say the shrading again, say the shreeding again, say the shriding again. These snippets were then synthesized in a process called concatenation that builds words, sentences, and paragraphs. The job was done, the check had cleared, and life went on. Then, 2011 rolled around, and Siri was unveiled as an integrated feature in Apple's iPhone 4S. The actors who'd worked for Nuance had no idea until well after it happened. Bennett found out that her voice was actually Siri after a friend emailed her, Hey, we've been playing around with this new Apple phone. Isn't this you? Apple had purchased SoftScan or Nuance and all of its assets. Apple bought our voices from Nuance without our knowing it. As a voice actor, this turn of events was problematic for a few reasons. Typecasting and stereotyping, for one. The downside of being successful in a role is that that's all people want you to be after that, like Sean Bean in A Character That Dies. So Bennett kept her identity close to her vest until 2013, when Apple switched voices. My voice was just the original voice on the 4S and the 5, but now it no longer sounds like Apple because Siri sounds like everyone else. The original Siri voice had a lot of character. She had a lot of attitude. Now, Bennett has never said how much she made from Nuance, but we know how much she's made from Apple. In round figures, give or take for inflation, let's see, she has made zero dollars. Her voice was on something like 17 million phones. Even a penny per phone would have been a handsome payday, but no, no penny for you. We were paid for the amount of time we spent recording, but not at all for usage. The only way I've been able to get any payment for it, really, is through my speaking events. 
but I'm very grateful to have been the voice of Siri. She's very iconic. It's led to a whole new career for me. Another widespread voice that didn't get commensurate royalties is known for a single phrase, barely even a sentence. From FIFA and Madden to UFC and NBA, Andrew Anthony's voice has opened EA Sports video games for 30 years now, and let us all have a collective shiver of mortality at that fact. Anthony had a friend who ran a small ad sales company who had taken on the not-yet-industry cornerstone Electronic Arts as a client. My friend called me up in Toronto and said, Hey, will you do this thing for free? I said, Yeah, of course I will. I don't even know what it is, but I get a free trip down to see you, so sure. So Anthony went to visit his friend, read the line, which was originally, If it's in the game, it's in the game, and assumed he would never, ever hear anything about it again. Call that an underestimation. EA is valued at $37 billion, with the sports arm being a big chunk of that. And Anthony has seen exactly none of that money. And he's okay with that. Over the years, Anthony has met plenty of other gaming fans and happily agreed to do his EA Sports voice impression on camera. Now, not every screen actor is able to do voice work successfully. We've all heard flat, lackluster performances from big-name celebrities in animated features. Looking at you, Sarah Michelle Gellar from the recent He-Man remake. Not so with the person who arguably kicked off the trend of booking big-name stars for voice work, Robin Williams in his role as Genie. Williams recorded 30 hours of dialogue, most of it improvised, I don't even need to say that, for the 90-minute movie. He took the role for 9% of the fee he normally commanded on the condition that the recordings not be used to merchandise products. He wanted to, quote, leave something wonderful behind EA for his kids. Sports. It's in the game. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Here's the end of the story from the beginning of part one. So a woman working at the company that would become America Online overheard her boss saying he wanted a voice to notify people when they received email, and she volunteered her husband. I recorded it on a cassette deck in my living room, Elward Edwards told the New York Post. Most people think I'm retired and own an island. Instead, he works at WKYC-TV from 3.30 to noon and drives an Uber from noon to 6. In 2014, Edwards told CNBC that he likes to prank people by standing behind their computers and booming out, You've got mail! He's not bothered by not getting any royalties, so I guess we shouldn't be either. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and the links to the source material at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. And remember, I'm available for all your voice work needs, from a tiny phone message to a long training module. Visit moxielabouche.com.
love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.